0: In 2004, a Baptist, a self-proclaimed Baptist, by the name of Jan Aldridge Clayton teamed up with the prolific composer Larry E. Schultz to produce Imagine God, a children's musical that uses a variety of feminine, masculine, and non-gender images of God. Children in this musical sing lyrics such as, Our God is a mother and a father too, and God is a friend who will always see us through. Our God is a sister who loves you and me, and God is a brother who sets us free. The lyrics also speak of God as Mother Eagle, referring to God using feminine pronouns and sometimes addressing God as Mother Sophia a 2016 New Yorker article on Southern Baptists recalls an era between the 60s and the 80s when one graduate of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, my alma mater, reported hearing a professor begin class with an anti-patriarchal prayer, Our Mother who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. On a more popular level, perhaps you've heard of or even read William Paul Young's book, The Shack, which came out in 2007 and then was put out as a major motion picture in 2017, starring Octavia Spencer as Papa. The fictional story tells about the tragic uh, tale of Mac and the passing of his daughter, tragically, and his encounter with three persons in this shack in the woods that are meant to represent the Trinity, sort of. And as he sorts through his tragic loss, we hear Papa gently say, I am neither male nor female, even though both genders are derived from my nature. If I choose to appear to you as a man or woman, it's because I love you. For me to appear to you as a woman and suggest you call me Papa is simply to mix metaphors to help you keep from falling so easily back into your religious conditioning. Religious conditioning. Is that what we're dealing with here? How do we sort through all of this confusion? These are people, not who claim to be atheists, but who claim to be Christians, and even Baptists, some of them. Who's to say what we call God? What is more, who's to say... How we worship that God once we figure out what to call him, her, or it. And are there consequences for getting it wrong? If you have your Bible this morning, and if you don't, I'd encourage you to take the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we pick up our story this morning where we left off last week. In chapter 5, we have a climax of sorts really spanning from the beginning of 1 Samuel where we have Hannah crying out, give to your servant a son, and we have a miscarriage of that request with Saul when God gives the people what they think they want, but it's not what they need. And then finally here, we receive David as king. David gathers his people. David conquers his city, and David commits his first act of obedience as king to the Lord. Now David wants to bring God's presence to live in David's city along with him, and which means transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And so let's stand together as we honor the name of the Lord, as we commit to obeying his word, and as we fear his mighty presence among us. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and the place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the Ark of God come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This morning's narrative is especially important for us As Baptists. And the reason why is because Baptists are a part of what's called the free church tradition, which means we don't have any denominational order of worship handed down to us through the generations that we must adhere to. Every Baptist church is free to worship God according to their context and their conscience and convictions. But this poses a constant threat, a grave danger of falling off the cart, so to speak, when it comes to our worship of God if we are not careful. So, this morning's story asks this central question what is true worship? What is true worship? Because the people in the story, they are fully convinced in their own minds that they are, in fact, worshiping God. What with all the tambourines and the cymbals and the guitars and the keyboards and the pianos and the drum sets and the celebration and dancing and singing, but the question is, no, you need to set all that stuff aside for a second. What is true worship? Unfortunately for King David and the rest of Israel, they have three hard lessons to learn this morning before the presence of God can enter into the city of David, and they are these. True worship honors his name. Secondly, true worship obeys his word. Thirdly, true worship fears the Lord. Well, verse 1 tells us that David mustered all of his chosen men, and they went to the place where the ark of God was. It had been stationed on a hill at a house that belonged to a man named Abinadab. And that's actually where the ark of God has been parked for decades in the story. You can go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 to see how it got there. Back to Philistines were the ones who returned it from captivity. If you were here during the series of 1 Samuel, this should all be ringing some bells. The ark was taken into captivity, brought back from the Philistines, and it was parked there, and it's been there for decades. But as the the narrator is is setting the scene and, and telling us uh, setting the stage, he inserts a detail that's really not necessary to set the story straight. And whenever a narrator does that, it should draw our attention. This is not essential to the story, so it must be important if the narrator goes out of his way to insert this. Look at verse 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. And here's the detail that isn't, isn't necessary but is inserted Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The writer of 2 Samuel wants us to remember whose name is blazoned on the side of this ark. Whose name is tied to this golden throne? Whose name and reputation and glory dwells between the two burning cherubim on top of this ark? Whose name is it? This ark, he reminds us, is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. And true worship (coughs) will remember that. True worship honors... His name. Unfortunately, this morning, David and all the people of Israel failed to do that. Now, they were having a lot of fun, though, weren't they? Verse 5 tells us, David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Unfortunately, at many of our churches, from when our children are yay, hi. The thing that we constantly drill into them and the question that we always ask them when we're on our way home from church is this. Did you have fun at church? And we teach our children that fundamentally, church is about having fun. But the fundamental question when it comes to worshiping God is not, is it fun? But it's this, does it honor his name? Because worship that does not honor and glorify the name of the Lord is by definition not worship. Worship is to ascribe worth and value and glory to someone else. And so if we are not about that in our worship, we are not truly worshiping. The great danger of fun is not necessarily that fun is sinful. Fun's not sinful. But fun can trivialize the name of the eternal God. In the midst of all the fun and the making merry and the celebrating and the singing and the fun that David and the people were having, no one stopped to think for a moment that they were in the presence of the Almighty God who dwelt there above the cherubim. No one pondered, this ark bears the name of Yahweh, the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Lord who conquered Pharaoh and his army and all the gods of Egypt and clapped them together with the waters of the Red Sea. The Lord who... When he came to Mount Sinai, his presence wrapped the mountain in smoke and the mountain shook. The Lord who told Moses, You better go down and warn these people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests come near and consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. This is the Lord who's dwelling over this ark. We need to give honor and glory and adoration to his name. But no one was thinking about that that day. In the midst of their making merry and their fun having and their music and celebrations, no one realized that Uzzah was just one misstep away from the end of his life. Church, Do we want to trivialize the presence of the eternal God among us? Or will we strive whenever we are gathered to acknowledge and to honor and to glorify and exalt His name above every other name when we are together? And make that our number one priority in worship. Because this is where David and his priests made the gravest mistake. We, the people of God, we those made in His image, we who are in Christ have been made a new creation brought out of darkness into the light to declare His excellencies. It is our job to bear forth His glorious name to the rest of this world. As we're marching about in a glorious train, we're the ones who wear His name. This is our job, to carry his name before the nations. That's why Jesus stamps his name and his image upon us, is so that when we go out into this world, we will bear his name and bring glory to it. And this is the main problem with how things went down in this story. It's that the ark was designed to be carried, not by oxen, it was designed to be carried by the priests of God. They were meant to bear his name. But what did they do? They decided to outsource it to some cows. Brothers and sisters, we cannot pretend that the same temptation doesn't lurk in every church today. People made with mouths to worship and exalt and glorify the name of God. You know what? I'm just not very good at it. I just sometimes don't feel like it. Let's outsource it and we'll hire some professional musicians who can do it for us. Moms and dads who are made to bear the name of the Lord and give him honor and glory in their homes as they share the gospel with their children. You know what? That's awkward. I don't know how to do it. We'll hire a youth pastor and we'll outsource it to him. Christians who are blessed with the privilege to carry the name of Jesus out into their community and to share the good news with the poor. You know what? I just don't have time. We will hire an outreach minister and we'll outsource it. Church members who are bound by their covenant promises to carry the name of the Lord into nursing homes and to bedsides of members who can no longer gather with God's people. But you know what? They're gross and smelly and old. Let's hire a senior adult pastor and we will outsource it. Friend, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, Jesus says to us, take my yoke upon you. You are the humble beast that is supposed to bear his name. Not someone else, not your pastor, not the hired gun at church. You and I, we're the ones that are supposed to carry that name and bring him glory. Your mouth, your body, your time, your resources, in all of them you worship God as you bear forth his name. This is true worship, worship that honors his name. Secondly, true worship obeys his word. And the crux of the problem and the conflict arises from the way that they're transporting the ark. And the narrator makes sure we picture things exactly how they are in verse 3. And they carried, the, the word there is they charioted. They, they, they are rolling it on something with wheels. They're carrying the ark of God on a new cart and bringing it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So in all of their celebration and their singing and their celebration and dancing, no one has considered the fact that the way that they are transporting this ark is in direct disobedience to God's command. On Mount Sinai, when the Lord gave Moses instructions for how to build the ark, he said, now you need to weld rings onto the side of this thing, four of them, one on each corner, and then you need to build long poles that go into those rings, And I quote, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Why? Because the ark ain't supposed to be on a cart. It's supposed to be carried. You don't drag it. You don't roll it. You definitely don't touch the ark with your hands. You carry it. That's why Moses writes in Deuteronomy, at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So God says, put poles in the ark, and I'm going to set apart my priests, and their job is going to be to carry that thing. And here we have David with Ahio and Uzzah transporting the ark on an ox cart. I'm sorry, on a new ox cart. you got to give him credit. It's not a used one. You know, we didn't let <coughs> fill it with hay and, and stuff. No, this is a brand new, straight out of the dealership, new cart. But I was thumbing through the law this week and looking for any mention of a cart with, re, uh, with regards to the ark, and you can't find it. Because the law doesn't say anything about a cart, whether old or new, whether ritually clean or dirty, it's not there. And then I realized, you know, this transporting the ark of God on a cart thing is really familiar, but it's not because God talks about it in his law. This is how the Philistines transported the Ark of God in 1 Samuel. And I turn back to 1 Samuel, and there it is. This is actually how the Ark of God got to the house of Abinadab in the first place. The Philistines put the Ark on a cart, pulled by a couple milk cows, and it made its way to where it stands when David and his men come to get it. So here's how it went down. The Israelites said to one another, You know, the Philistines are pagans. But I think they may have been onto something with this whole cart thing. Work smarter, not harder. It's so much work to carry this thing by hand. I mean, it's the 11th century, baby. We got carts, we got wheels. Why are we carrying this thing around? We don't need to break anyone's back. Besides, don't we want the Lord's presence in Zion ASAP? This is going to be quicker, more efficient. And hey, now the priests have their hands free. They can shake a tambourine and they can dance and join in all the worship. Win-win. And it's obvious the Israelites have fought this thing through because they even use a new cart, a ritually clean cart, right? We're going we're to update this religion for the new generation. Brothers and sisters, here is what God desires more than our really great plan for how we're going to worship him, more than our improvements or our thoughts about how to be more expeditious in getting things done. Here is what he wants from us. True worship, which obeys his word. Obedience. That is true worship. And I'm sure that you already can think of At least a half dozen different ways you've seen the church today capitulating and doing what they think is improving the worship of God. God tells us what marriage is in Genesis 2, the second chapter of the Bible, folks. I mean, even if you haven't read very far into your Bible, you've at least made it to the second chapter. But it's the 21st century, baby. We can improve marriage. We can reinvent it for the new age. Or maybe you didn't even make it past Genesis chapter 1. Guess what? Genesis 1. God tells us his design for male and female. It's 2020, baby. Two genders. Man, that's so restrictive. Think about all the ways we could glorify and worship God with 200 genders. Amazing. Diversity. No matter how much we try to sanctify our own personal opinions or try to make holy our invented ways to worship God, there really is only one way to worship Him, and it's true for whatever millennia or decade or culture you are living in, and it's worship that springs out of obedience. 100% obedience to God's Word. We don't worship him by smoking marijuana peace pipes in our gathering or going on acid trips. We don't worship him by addressing him as the eternal mother or the eagle god or my Bail or whatever other name we think might better suit him for our modern culture. We don't get to choose to worship God by consorting with religious prostitutes or bowing down to idols or icons as God's people have down through the millennia. Even if our intention and the heart behind it is we just want to worship God. Because true worship happens in response to what we hear from God and what he tells us he wants us to do. When Moses meets God in the wilderness in Exodus 3, God's sending him back to Israel Moses doesn't describe, decide. He's just going to ascribe to God whatever, whatever name seems fit, you know? I, I think I'll say, I'll, I think I'll say, Frank sent me. I think I'll say, Frank the God sent me. That, that's the God that we're going to serve. No. Moses says, if I come to the people and they say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, well, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God tells us what to call him. God tells us how to serve him. How to worship him. The Philistines didn't have the law. And so they did the best they could. They sort of worshipped God the way they would have served one of their idols. They put him on a cart. They filled that cart with golden tumors and mice. They didn't know any better. But Israel did know better. David certainly knew better. And why? Because David had this. The people of Israel had this. And even... In fact, if you go and read the second half of chapter 6, it's abundantly clear David knew exactly what he should have done in the first place. Brothers and sisters, we know better. We cannot excuse our heterodoxy, whether in our practice or in our belief, by claiming ignorance. We have been given the whole counsel of God. Peter reminds us his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And God forbid, after having received the 66 books of this inspired word of God, that we should take our cues of how to worship God from the culture around us. God forbid that we should ever think that the world can show us best how we ought to worship our God. How shameful, not only to pattern our worship after the way the world worships its idols, but in so doing, to set aside completely his word, which he has graciously given to us. This is our blueprint. These things are not just FYI, you know, for your information, just historical facts you might be interested in. This is FYI for your imitation. When you read about the New Testament church and how the apostles were leading the people and you see how the disciples are learning from Jesus and becoming followers of Christ, that's not just for your information, that's for you to do as well. The letters of Paul written to the churches, those are not just culturally confined documents from 2,000 years ago. Those are things we're supposed to do and obey today as a church. This is how we worship together, by obeying his word. This is why the preaching of God's Word is so central to our weekly worship service. This is why all the songs you hear us singing are so bursting at the seams with Scripture. And why we pray the way we do and read Scripture together the way we do. And why we, as best we can, try to govern our church according to the way the churches were governed in the New Testament. Why we celebrate the Lord's Supper and do baptism the way we do. All these things, true worship is seeking to obey God's Word. Little did David and the people realize that their disobedience to God's command would end in the death of one of their brothers. Verse 6 tells us, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Verse 8, And David was angry. Because the Lord had burst forth against Isaac. Why is David angry? David liked it just fine last week in the previous chapter when the presence of the Lord burst forth against his enemies and destroyed the Philistines before him. But David is angry when the Lord does the exact same thing, bursting forth against Uzzah. Why? Because David is operating according to a double standard. God should defend his holiness out there against his enemies, but not here (coughs) among his people. But that's precisely the point. What point is there to a holy God defending his holiness out there among his enemies but then allowing his kingdom to be polluted with sin and disobedience day after day after day? What does that say about him? Friends, David had to learn, thirdly and finally, that true worship fears the Lord. True worship fears the Lord. David is angry with the Lord for being consistent and just. David is angry with the Lord for keeping his word. David is angry with the Lord for punishing sin, but perhaps the biggest reason David is angry is because someone else was killed for his disobedience. Who's the one who put Uzzah in this compromising position where when the oxen stumble, he has to reach out and stabilize the ark? Who's the one who authorized this mission, who gathered up all of his men and said, we're moving this ark, and decided we're going to move it on a cart instead of carrying it the way God said to? David did. David is angry because he is realizing that his sinful choices as king will have consequences for his people. Then we see a quick change come over David in verse 9. His anger turns to fear. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. This is the beginning of true worship in the heart of David because you see in his heart, anger subsides and fear begins to reside. True worship fears the Lord. It's the realization that God is God and I am not. That I am nothing and he is everything. That disobedience will not go unpunished. We have many churches that gather in fear on a regular basis on Sundays. Fearful about a lot of things. Fearful about the visitors. Will they like us? Will they like our music? Will they think our pastor is funny? Fear of the culture. What if they take away our tax-exempt status? What if they indoctrinate our children in their schools? What if we lose political influence in our culture? But show me a church that gathers in the fear of the Lord. And I will show you a place where there is true worship. David had to realize that you cannot be cavalier in the presence of the Almighty God. You cannot be casual in the presence of the creator of the universe. You cannot just simply be comfortable before Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is not some teddy bear god David is dealing with here. And it is good for David and for you and I to fear the Lord. Lingering in the air is this question that David has in verse 9. How? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? if this is the fearful, awesome God, if this is how he will punish disobedience, if this is the worship that he is owed, how can the presence of God be with men? How can God dwell with a sinful man like you and I? How can sinners truly worship before a righteous and holy God? if you're a believer this morning, then you ought to know the answer. Jesus is how. Jesus has come. The presence of God among sinful men. Jesus Christ has suffered and bled and died and been raised and been exalted to a throne so that true worshipers come and acknowledge that his name is above every name. I don't care whether you are dead or alive this morning. There will be a day when you <coughs> honor his name. Among and above all others. Jesus is how. He has come and lived obediently in the place of his father David. In the place of people like us. Who have disobeyed God intentionally and unintentionally. In the place of all sinners who think that we know better than God. And he has chosen to give us His perfect obedience and his perfect submission to God's word in exchange for our disobedience. So that now we can walk in newness of life as we follow after him. And he calls true worshipers to himself. If you love him, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. One day this risen son of David will return to Mount Zion And when he stands there, as we've already heard from our article 19, the resurrection from the dead, dead and living will rise out of their graves and stand before Jesus Christ. And on that day, we will all fear him. But to those who have believed, he will say, do not be afraid. Draw near. Lord Jesus, we do trust in your name. We want to obey your word. We want to fear you. You are the king in this place. You rule, you reign. We pray that we would never pretend to be God in this place or anywhere else. Lord Jesus, help us to serve you and to worship you in spirit and in truth.